Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. The Defense Innovation Unit, DIU, is the only Department of Defense organization focused exclusively on fielding and scaling commercial technology across the U.S. military to help it solve critical problems and build a force for the future today. How does DIU execute its critically important mission? What is DIU doing to give innovative businesses and startups the opportunity to solve high-impact national security problems? And what does the future hold for the Defense Innovation Unit? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Michael Brown, Director of the Defense Innovation Unit within the U.S. Department of Defense. Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. So uh, let's start off by learning more about your organization, Mike, and, and could you give us an overview of the history and evolving mission of the Defense Innovation Unit, DIU? What prompted its creation? And more importantly, how has it evolved to meet the needs of DOD? Well, sure. Uh, then Secretary of Defense Ash Carter created it uh, six years ago when he looked out and saw a couple of things. Number one, he saw that a lot more of the R&D uh, spending in the U.S. was happening in the commercial sector and that to access uh, that commercial technology in areas like AI and cyber and autonomous systems was going to be critical for providing warfighting capability for the Department of Defense. And number two, he saw that we weren't particularly adept, meaning we weren't fast <laughs> and we didn't really have access uh, to that technology. So we need a different model for how some of that commercial technology gets into the department. That's what prompted him to create uh, the Defense Innovation Unit. In terms of how our mission has evolved over time, it's expanded a bit. So we're still uh, carrying out the mission that he set for us, which is how do we accelerate the adoption of commercial technology? But we've added two other elements that uh, really expand the base of companies that uh, the department is working with. We call that in the defense strategy, the national security innovation base, meaning we need to work with a lot more than just the defense contractors, the defense primes to make that capability available for the department. So we have National Security Innovation Network, which works with uh, universities, uh, incubators, and accelerators uh, to bring very early stage ideas and technology in. Uh, that's where the Hacking for Defense program is housed, if you're familiar with that. Taught at a number of different campuses across the U.S., so very early ideas. In fact, some companies have been started from that that are now vendors to the Defense Department. Then the other element, National Security Innovation Capital, which way of catalyzing private investment in hardware. Uh, the venture capital uh, industry in the US is more focused on software these days than hardware, but the military runs on hardware. So we have uh, an initiative that just uh, got funded last year to start to develop future hardware vendors uh, that were in need in the defense department. So those three elements, uh, what we call the core of DIU or the original part of DIU, which is project-based, National Security Innovation Network, National Security Innovation Capital 
are the three elements of Defense Innovation Unit today. That's wonderful. Thank you. So you kind of laid out the next part because my question was around organization operationally. Um, I don't know if you have anything more to add about that, but more importantly, Mike, how does your process, the process DIU uses to field and scale commercial technology across U.S. military, how does that process work? And if you have anything else to add about the organization, feel free. Maybe the only important thing about the organization is that we now have through these three different parts of DIU, a way to engage with commercial technology, investors, and even in academia, some of the folks that will be working on national security ideas, we have a way to engage with those people and organizations at every stage of development from concept all the way to a company that's ready to provide a solution. So I think that allows us to have a broad set of, uh, thinking and capabilities uh, that we can bring into the department. We really have a process that's modeled on the way the commercial world does business. So it's all about speed and uh, simplicity, uh, which is a bit different than how the Defense Department has traditionally uh, acquired capabilities, which when you're buying an aircraft carrier, <laughs> you might need some of that complexity. Uh, but if you're buying commercial <laughs> software, you don't need. So what we've done is maximize the ability for competition by minimizing the opportunity cost for those companies to compete. We call that commercial solutions opening. It's a process we develop, uh, but it is really all about uh, ensuring that, uh, again, we get the most number of companies participating to support uh, an idea, uh, a concept, uh, but how do we minimize the burden on them so many more can participate. That's wonderful, Mike. You know, in your current role as director, you really, and this is not to, to, to put a finer point on it, you're really a change agent. And the perch from which you sit is really as dynamic what you're doing. I was wondering if you could sort of give us an overview of your specific duties and responsibilities as director. And how does the work of DIU that you lead really impact the overall mission of, of the U.S. Department of Defense? I'd say I was heavily influenced by the defense secretary who hired me, uh, Jim Mattis. And when I had the interview with him for the job, he really impressed upon me that uh, the important thing about DIU was, as you point out, we're a change agent, how to increase our impact, our, how can we operate at scale? So a lot of the things that we're doing take some of the ideas that were the reason for setting up DIU and say, okay, how could we be doing more? How do we have bigger impact? So that's really a function of two things. One, resources. Do we we need more resources as we've grown and, and, and we need more into the future so we can expand our impact and what we choose to work on. So and we really are have initiatives at DIU to focus on both of those. Uh, in terms of the impact, the kind of problems we work on, we think about as what will create the biggest impact at DOD. Uh, Secretary Mattis said, do things that are transformational that give the department new capabilities don't just do a single project that doesn't have any leverage. Uh, so when we think about what to work on, we have part of our organization that's continuously scanning for the most important problems that will, the problems that will save us the most money, that will deliver new capability, that will save the most lives. And so we look at impact on one dimension and the other is how big is the commercial market? What how robust are the different types of commercial capabilities we could bring to bear on this problem? And it's really the intersection of those two. The sweet spot is very high impact and a robust commercial set of vendors. That's the uh, the area that we want to be targeting at DIU to have the most impact. 
That's wonderful. You know, I often ask this question, Mike, and it, it, it usually I focus on management challenges that the executive that I'm talking with uh, is facing. I was wondering, they could be management challenges or uh, innovation challenges. What are some of the challenges you face in your role as the leader of DIU? And how are you seeking to address those challenges? So I'd say two come to mind. One, we just touched on resources. So uh, as DIU has grown, uh, just to give you a quick uh, example, we started 37 uh, projects uh, last year. That's almost double the average of number of projects we've started uh, for the six years we've been around. So our average over the six years, 20. Last year, we started 37. So we're on a growth path. We need resources to uh, be able to uh, accomplish that growth. So that's certainly one of the major challenges that I'm focused on. The second would be, uh, we're working with a much larger organization, the Defense Department, largest organization in the world. And as you point out, we're a change agent. Uh, that organization is not adept at how are we going to take these commercial technologies, which we're bringing into the department and scale them to make sure they really have an impact for our end users, the warfighter. So we often have to look at how are we uh, changing the process inside the Pentagon to create what we call a transition. So that means we've taken a capability and uh, it's been qualified or proven to work in a military environment. How do we make sure we've got a production contract, the budget behind it, and it can actually be scaled uh, so that warfighters can use that commercial technology. So getting the department to work with commercial uh, technology and a process to get that scaled uh, is a challenge for us. And that's another, we, if you'd like to, we can talk a little bit about what's involved there, but that's, that's one of the challenges we face. Well, if you don't mind, that'd be wonderful if you would like to follow up on that. Sure. So if you think about it, uh, the department really uh, needs a way to more quickly adopt uh, commercial technology. I call that a fast follower strategy. The department's processes really were put in place 60 years ago when uh, Secretary McNamara uh, really brought the best of what Ford Motor Company had as a planning process to the Department of Defense. That was entirely appropriate when the department was developing its own technology. The department was a first mover or creating the technology it needed. This has changed dramatically in the last 60 years where now the department needs to access the technology that is being developed in the commercial world, sometimes in the consumer world. So in that uh, era, in this era, where we're bringing in artificial intelligence, cyber, uh, autonomous systems, that type of technology, uh, we're not telling the commercial market what to build for us. We need to quickly access that. So instead of being a first mover, we really need to be a fast follower in terms of adopting that. And that implies we need to rethink a requirements process. We don't need to tell the commercial market what to build. The acquisition process where DIU has pioneered the use of other transaction authority, uh, which gives us a different way to buy versus the federal acquisition regulations, which is used for large scale weapons platforms. And then the budgeting process, we need a way to more easily move money to address emerging threats with new technology uh, since we're not developing that technology. So the combination of those changes will allow us to uh, both allow the department to respond to threats more quickly and use the value of commercial technology, which can be a lot more cost-effective uh, in addressing the, the needs that we have at Defense. 
That's wonderful, Mike. Thanks. And I was wondering, uh, you've been there for at least a couple of years uh, leading the show. Uh, what has surprised you most since taking over the role as the director of the Defense in Innovation Unit? So, Mike, my background is really from the commercial world. So I spent my entire career working with Silicon Valley uh, companies twice as a CEO. And the thing that has surprised me the most, I think, is the complexity that we have uh, in the government, in the Defense Department, in operating with the budget. First of all, the budget uh, is very long in being put together, long in uh, in its approval process, so a two and a half uh, year process. And it has different colors of money, as the government calls it, which means you can only use certain dollars that you're appropriated for uh, researching, other dollars for procurement. So those different colors of money create constraints or complexity in terms of how you manage an organization versus thinking, you know, all dollars are green and can be fungible. So that introduces quite a bit of complexity uh, into the role. That's wonderful. So Mike, you know, coming from the private sector into uh, public service and, and specifically in the area that you're in with sort of the technology, the intersection between leadership technology and innovation, Given your experience, Mike, what are the characteristics of an effective leader and what I'm really more interested in what leadership principles have guided your efforts and how you lead? Well, I think the leadership principles are pretty transferable uh, across government and, and business here. You, you, of course, have to understand what are you trying to accomplish or what I call setting the agenda. So if, if, you, if you don't have that in mind, uh, you're, you're any, you know, all roads can, can take you somewhere. But uh, the most important thing is really setting the vision or the, the agenda for where the organization is heading. Once you have that, then it's a matter of understanding, you know, how are we going to get there? A key component there is having the best possible uh, staff or talent to accomplish that mission. That's certainly the same in the private world as it is in government. Government has a few more constraints in terms of we can't pay people the same uh, that we do in the private sector but we have some incredibly dedicated folks because the mission is so important in the Defense Department, especially our men and women in uniform. So I've been very impressed with the caliber of talent uh, that we have at DIU. I feel very fortunate. It's one of the motivators for me every day is, is working with such top uh, quality talent. And then I'd say the last component is giving folks the tools, which includes process uh, that allows them to do their best work. Uh, that's certainly also true for the private sector. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, there's an environment where folks feel that uh, they can do their best work. And then have we given them all the tools uh, that we can? So tools we often think about as, you know, do I have connectivity? Do I have, uh, you know, a, a current, you know, computer or communication system? Certainly it's that. But it's also do we have a process that works that allows them to be able to scale their efforts? Those are the kind of things that we're thinking about at, at DIU. What are the key strategic priorities for the Defense Innovation Unit? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org 
to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center report responding to global health crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Michael Brown, Director of the Defense Innovation Unit within the U.S. Department of Defense. It's a great transition because earlier on, you you did a wonderful job of explaining the mission and evolution of the Defense Innovation Unit. Um, I'd like to talk about your strategic vision for however long that horizon is. What are your key strategic priorities that frame your vision and more importantly, Mike, are there any internal drivers and external trends that shape and inform your strategy? Well, let, let's start with your last question. Uh, one of the things that brought me to this work was understanding the uh, strategic competition that went with China. Uh, we haven't faced a competitor on the world stage uh, since the U.S. became preeminent, uh, you know, 150 years ago in terms of the, being the world's largest economy that we faced with China. So that means that uh, the competition that we're in has every dimension to it, uh, mostly an economic and technology uh, dimension, but there's also a, a geopolitical uh, dimension to this, ideological dimension to it. Uh, so this is uh, probably gonna be the challenge that defines our time uh, if we look at the next 50 years uh, for the US, this relationship with China. Uh, it's certainly very different than what we faced with the Soviet Union during the Cold War, because China is a much bigger economy and it's much more integrated into the global economy than, than the Soviets were. So I'd say that's the external trend that really is shaping our thinking at, at, at DIU. In terms of the vision for DIU, I think we've proven that uh, we have a model that scales in terms of bringing in commercial technology. The question is, how do we drive more impact? So that really, as we talked about before, is a function of what do we choose to work on and how many resources uh, do we have that allows us to do more projects. So I already mentioned we're almost at twice the level of projects we've done over our historical average. We're working with many more companies now. Uh, a, uh, uh, last year, I think we had a thousand different submissions from companies. Uh, we've probably introduced 80 first-time vendors to uh, the Defense Department, uh, written a, a few hundred contracts, but we're still just scratching the surface in terms of what could be done. So if we're influencing $2 billion of procurement at DIU uh, over our history, the Defense Department has bought over a trillion dollars worth of uh, equipment during that time. So there's so much more that we can do. So what we're thinking about is how do we... Uh, scale our impact so that we can be influencing even more of what the Defense Department is buying and having that be commercial technology, which has the advantages of being more current and being much more cost effective than when we design something ourselves. So I'd say uh, the, that impact is, uh, is one thing. And then we also see that there's a lot more that we could be doing supporting allies and partners around the world. 
we would like to be more proactive in using technology from allied companies and then technology solutions that we've qualified in a military environment. We believe we should be uh, selling that technology uh, to our allied militaries or partner militaries. So there's a lot more that we could do uh, in that dimension as well. Well, Mike, you know, earlier you mentioned the the strategy of fast follower, and you know, I thought it was interesting when I was preparing for our conversation. You did a wonderful presentation in which you sort of showed the historical evolution of the DOD when it was considered a first mover in the application and use of technology. And now things have changed. We need to accept that reality. I was hoping that you would delve a little deeper into the fast follower strategy. What are the four key elements that you outline in this kind of concept? Sure. Well, I think there's four things that we need to do to really implement that strategy. Unfortunately, they're fairly straightforward. So number one, uh, we need to think about where are the organizational homes within DOD for commercial technology. So if you think about what the Defense Department has done historically, it kind of naturally aligns by service or branch of the military. For example, when we're buying planes, the Air Force usually takes the lead, even though other branches uh, will often uh, be using aircraft like uh, like Marines or Navy would. But Air, Air, Air Force typically takes the lead. Navy takes the lead with ships, as an example. So with commercial technology, whether it's using uh, imagery we buy from commercial satellites or buying a commercial package that does artificial intelligence or machine learning, we don't need something that's service specific. Uh, and rather than duplicate uh, that technology across uh, the services, we need an organizational home, not the same home for every technology, but commercial satellite imagery needs a home. Uh, if we're buying AI software, that needs a home, et cetera. So we need that organizational home so we don't duplicate and waste resources. The second thing we need to do is make sure that uh, we think about that capability on an ongoing basis from a budgeting standpoint. In other words, we're not going to do a program where we uh, buy certain technology and field it for 40 years. Uh, we need to think about refreshing that technology uh, at the rate that the commercial market produces upgrades uh, that keeps our uh, current our technology current uh, that we're fielding. So to do that, uh, we need to budget for that capability and have that organizational home be constantly refreshing the technology and providing that. Third, uh, we need to make sure that uh, we're using commercial methods. If we want to encourage more companies to work with us, we've got to use uh, speed uh, as an advantage we've got to be encouraging that competition. That's what we've done at DIU with the commercial solutions opening. Uh, we can use uh, the other transaction authority instead of the federal acquisition regulations. Fortunately, those, those tools already exist. So I think if we think about the uh, providing an organizational home, budgeting so that we have the uh, ongoing uh, capability and funding to be able to refresh uh, that technology, and then if we use commercial methods, uh, those are the three elements. The, the fourth thing we need to think about is we don't need the requirements process. So today, anything that we buy at Defense Department starts with requirements, specifying what we need. As I mentioned earlier, with commercial technology, we don't need to specify that. So that's an easy uh, part of the process that we can eliminate. Uh, we'd probably need something in place there to validate uh, that we have a need, but we don't need to tell the market what to build. So if we think about those four elements, three things that we need in place, one that we need to remove, 
the obstacle of requirements, uh, then we could effectively implement the fast follower strategy. That's wonderful, Mike. And you know, you, you mentioned the requirements is time consuming and wow, to get rid of to focus on that alone is amazing, an amazing feat. You you've mentioned other terms, Mike, uh, other transaction authority, AT, OTAs. I was hoping, you know, we talk about the the federal acquisition re- requirements far. I was hoping you could help us define what OTAs are and how have they become part of the defense research process and are they effective? Very effective. Uh, there was just a report that uh, that IBM sponsored that uh, showed that uh, really accomplishes all of the same objectives of the uh, federal acquisition regulations, which really means we're maximizing competition uh, and we are transparent uh, with that. So I was very pleased to see that report. Ba- basically, uh, other transaction authority was uh, a way to think about buying things for the government but going faster uh, in accomplishing that. So uh, it's not a new authority. In fact, it was granted to NASA back in 1958 as a response to Sputnik. Uh, so seeing that we already had a process that wasn't agile uh, at the time in the 1950s, the Congress recognized we need to go faster here in uh, given the challenge that uh, the Soviets uh, threw down to us after Sputnik. And so that authority was given to, to NASA so that we could navigate uh, buying things much more rapidly. And that same authority was given to the Defense Department almost a decade ago. And DIU has been one of the prime users of it, but now there are many folks who are using that that authority. So I think about it a way as more streamlined, flexible, and faster way to be buying things. And I think there's the ability for that to be much more widely deployed. We need more folks who are trained uh, in the other transaction authority. And I'd love to see uh, the Defense Department from the most senior levels encouraging much more widespread use of, of OTAs as an alternative to the federal acquisition regulations. That's wonderful, Mike. So as a follow-up, how does the changing technology landscape impact the need for or the value of OTAs, other transaction authorities? Uh, I think we're seeing more and more areas of the Defense Department uh, start to use this, but we have really just scratched the surface on where it could be used. And I feel the same way about commercial technology. Uh, it, it is being used, but uh, it could be used much more uh, widely. And it is the way to make sure that uh, we continue to use the latest technology. So if you think about the way we've traditionally purchased things at Defense, the development on that platform, be it a, a ship or a new fighter aircraft, stops the day we start the first purchase. How different that is in the commercial world where when we buy a Tesla or an iPhone, the development continues and we have access to that through software upgrades. We'd be much more effective at DOD if we thought the same way about what we want to purchase. We should be requiring that the modules within what we buy continue to be upgraded as the commercial world uh, upgrades those to keep up with the global competition. So I think we need much more of that way of thinking as we buy things in the Defense Department. Other transaction authority is just one of the tools that allows us to um, to buy things in that way. You know, Mike, switching gears a bit, um, 
we've seen the erosion of federally funded R&D as a percentage of GDP. And, and you've pointed out that more than acquisition reform is required if the U.S. wants to regain its technological edge. We've talked about this a little bit earlier about the requirements. What can be done to reform the requirements and budget components of the DOD's planning, programming, budget, and execution process? And I don't know if you want to tell us a little bit about, more about that process. Sure. So uh, you're right. I think one of the challenges we have in the competition with China is that we need to be investing more in our science and technology enterprise across the nation. Uh, if you think about the prosperity that we enjoy from our high technology uh, industry today, it really is a result of the spending that we decided to do by the federal government on more risky technologies. They were more risky when we developed them. Uh, starting at the time of the space race. So miniaturized electronics, the uh, development of GPS, uh, those things have created a phenomenal foundation uh, for many different companies and industries uh, to be formed. That uh, federally funded R&D has been in a steady decline since the 1960s, when at that time it was 2% of our GDP in the US. Today it's 0.7%, and half of that is spent on health initiatives which uh, after uh, what we're seeing with the pandemic, we're pleased about, but that means national security oriented uh, funding is now down to 0.35%. That's not the profile of a technology leader. And I think uh, given the benefits that we have from being a technology leader that we've enjoyed basically since World War II, we need to be investing a lot more to make sure that we have uh, the preeminent foundation in science and technology to create the new industries and be on the forefront of leading technologies like, like quantum sciences, like artificial intelligence. A report that was just done by the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School just came out yesterday, talks about the changing picture in terms of how uh, preeminent China is becoming on the world stage in a lot, of these, uh, a lot of these technologies. Part of what we need to do to respond to this is think about the way we program and, and, and plan our dollars. So again, back to the McNamara era, uh, we came up with a very a systematic approach to look at requirements. Uh, what did we want to build based on those requirements and then budget for that? Again, it's a very long process. Uh, it takes two and a half years to program a dollar and have that be approved by Congress. And we're competing against China that, uh, and I don't want their authoritarian regime but can move much more quickly. So we have to be thinking about what are the disadvantages of our system and how could we move more quickly. Uh, in the National Defense Authorization Act that uh, was just uh, passed by the House, there is uh, a, uh, some efforts underway in the Senate version of the NDAA, which, uh, which now you know, will go to conference, has a provision for studying the uh, planning, programming, budgeting, execution, ppb &E process. So I think there's a recognition that this needs some attention so that we can be more agile, more flexible here. We don't need to have that flexibility for the whole uh, 700 plus billion dollar budget, but we need the ability to move more money around at the edges, again, to respond to emerging threats and two, to make sure that we can include more current technology to respond to those threats. So I think there's a recognition that, as you said, uh, when we think about why does it take a long time to buy things, we have to now work on the parts of the process that are interconnected with acquisition. Acquisition reform has 
been a topic in uh, DC for the last uh, 40 or 50 years. We've made some progress. Now we've got to work on those other interrelated components, requirements, which we, we talked about, and budgeting, uh, the PPB&E process. Those need to change so that we can very effectively uh, move at, at faster speeds. That's a wonderful perspective, Mike. You mentioned earlier also, you know, uh, the ability to work alongside our allies and partners on a large scale. What more can be done and how can that actually be, ex what, what can we do to make this happen? So I think recognizing that uh, the U.S. is not uh, the center of all the technology development uh, uh, in the world, the way we probably were after World War II, uh, is a start. We need to be working with our allies more effectively on standards. Uh, China has become very active in recent years in gaining key positions in the standard setting bodies globally. Uh, we need to recognize with our allies that this is an important part. And then also coordinating on what technologies we want to focus on and field. So this is not a burden. We talked about the uh, percentage of federally funded R&D being in decline. This isn't a burden that the U.S. needs to shoulder alone. Working with our allies, we can decide which technologies are worthy of uh, future investment and how can we work with our allies to do that. An example would be quantum sciences. So Australia, as an example, a key partner after AUKUS, a uh, critical relationship that we are furthering. Australia has a very well-developed a scientific community focused on uh, quantum sciences and its applications. So why not work with Australia to decide which research the U.S. is going to do, which Australia is going to do, and field some of that technology together? I think the Defense Department could be working to uh, take the lead with key partners where they have technology specialties, and that would vary by country, to say we're going to work on this technology together in setting standards, looking at where the research uh, should be done. Not every, we, we want to make sure that's additive and not duplicative, and then working to field that technology to the military. We'd certainly be excited about uh, doing our part at DIU in working with uh, other countries' innovation organizations uh, to make that happen. How can commercial technologies help the U.S. military services meet their missions? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Michael Brown, 
Director of the Defense Innovation Unit within the U.S. Department of Defense. You mentioned a couple of times uh, that, you know, eight of the 10, as I understand it, DOD modernization priorities rely on commercial technologies or are commercial technologies. And we need to find innovation, innovative ways to attract private sector investment, especially as you pointed out earlier in our conversation with regards to hardware. And I think batteries, quantum sensors, things like that. To that end, could you tell us more about the National Security Innovation Capital Program and how does it work and how does it help us achieve what we need to achieve? Sure. So when we looked at uh, where our new technology is being funded, uh, fortunately we have a vibrant venture capital industry in the U.S. It's played a critical role in bringing uh, technologies to market. And many have uh, basically uh, taken advantage of the foundation of technology that the government has created. There's a book that Ms. Matsukata wrote about the fact that the uh, everything, every technology in the iPhone came from federally funded research. So what is the uh, miniaturized electronics, uh, the communications technology, et cetera, all of it uh, really started with federal research. And Apple did a phenomenal job of packaging that and creating a product that uh, now consumers use globally. So I think uh, that analogy holds. There's a tremendous amount is being done uh, with the venture capital industry today, but as the objective has become, how do we make more money? We've increasingly, the venture capital industry has increasingly turned to software and where can platforms be built? And because hardware is a little bit more difficult to bring to market, takes longer. You got to think about inventory and capital equipment. Uh, the returns for that are often not viewed as being uh, in the same league as what you can achieve with software. As a result, uh, we are not funding as many future hardware ideas. Most of the venture capital is not going to early stage and not going to hardware. So we saw a need in the market for this to occur and decided that we could play a role at DOD in terms of the market signaling. What are the technologies that are interesting? What are the companies that have developed technologies that, that really could benefit us? So you've got signals about companies and different technology sectors. And it was for that reason that we created National Security Innovation Capital. It's a small amount of money. Last year, it was his first year being appropriated at $15 million. Uh, we think you could easily take advantage of five or 10 times that amount of money uh, to be seeding the future hardware vendors for the Defense Department in the areas uh, that you mentioned, batteries, quantum sensors, space components. So in these areas, we are hoping to uh, catalyze private investment by lowering the risk for them to jump in. We talked about the market signaling advantage here, but also providing some money up front that helps these companies get to a next critical stage, again, lowering the risk for private money to come in. So we're excited about uh, getting started. We had 100 companies apply for the funds, the 15 million. We funded nine companies uh, around the country, uh, so uh, geographically dispersed. And uh, we're excited about what they could do for the future. We'd like to see a growing set of future hardware vendors that we could draw on when we do projects for the Defense Innovation Unit. Yeah, as a follow-up, uh, you sounded uh, the alarm around Chinese venture capital. And, and I was wondering, what is being done to address, mitigate, and potentially tackle the influence of, of adversarial capital? So let's start with the uh, National Security Innovation Capital. One of the requirements for accepting funds from us is the agreement that you're not going to accept adversarial capital. And by that, we mean primarily Chinese, but sometimes that's Russian or Chinese capital down the road in funding. 
So we're saying we want uh, you to be accepting capital from, from trusted sources, and that's so that we could rely on what you develop uh, uh, within the government. Uh, you may know that uh, the government is not going to be working with a company where the funding or control is uh, is foreign influence, especially from, from adversaries. There's been quite a bit uh, done to look at this problem in a larger sense. So uh, I had the a privilege of working earlier in my time in government on the foreign uh, the foreign investment risk review modernization act which was uh, the ability to strengthen CFIUS, the committee on foreign investment in the u.s so that it had more jurisdiction over technology transfers that go beyond straight up acquisitions so uh CFIUS is our primary tool for investment screening and then of course we have export controls at the same time firma was passed back in 2018 there was the Export Control Reform Act that uh, was passed to give more capability to the Commerce Department to regulate the technology that we don't want going to, to adversaries. So I think uh, we have a number of things underway in the government to make sure that uh, we are tackling adversarial capital. There's probably more that we need to do, but the most important thing, going back to what we talked about earlier, is that we invest in ourselves. That uh, while we're trying to block adversarial capital in our own startups, we really want to make sure that we're doing the investing here in the U.S. and with our allies to make sure that we stay on the forefront of science and technology, both from a national security standpoint, but also to ensure that we deliver economic prosperity for the next uh, next few decades in the United States. So, Mike, what, what, do you, what does the future hold for the Defense Innovation Unit? And are there any other successes that we didn't talk about that maybe you'd like to highlight? Well, I think the future for us uh, really is all about how we increase the impact that we're driving. So we'd like to be doing more projects. Uh, we'd like to be doing projects that are larger scale, and we have some examples of tackling those uh, today. And we'd like to be working internationally with our partners. There's so many different uh, things that we're proud of in terms of what we've done uh, at DIU. I'll, I'll just mention, uh, mention two of them now. Um, one is that uh, we've created what we call Blue uh, SUAS, Small Unmanned Aerial Systems, so recognizing that in this technology area, China has already gotten the lead. Uh, Chinese companies are responsible for 90% of the small drones or consumer drones uh, that are produced in the world. And recently, these have been used very effectively in warfighting situations. Uh, we saw small drones delivering grenades or other uh, dangerous cargo uh, in the uh, fighting in Iraq uh, that happened in the battle for Mosul. We saw them being used pretty effectively in a conflict recently between Armenia and Azerbaijan. So this is gonna be an increasing part of the capability that we need at DOD and very problematic that 90% of the world supply comes from China. So we decided what we need to do is harmonize requirements across DOD so that we're not splitting the volume that we need across uh, multiple uh, different vendors uh, but how could we ag aggregate that so that we can create some competitive, some economically viable vendors for the future, harmonizing what we need to buy with uh, vendors that we help to make successful globally. So the blue SUF is really uh, aimed at doing that. Uh, and, and today we're increasing the number of vendors that we have on an approved list that are cyber hardened, that don't use Chinese components. Uh, obviously they don't come from China as a completed product and making those available for the government to purchase. Today, we have those available on the GSA schedule. So anyone from the government can purchase those, not just the Defense Department, but 
Customs Border Patrol, Department of Interior, FBI, and we see ways in the future to be able to both make it easier for people to buy and expand the number of drones that, uh, that you can purchase in that way. So that's an example of providing a specific requirement for or capability for the Defense Department, but looking broader at what are the uh, geopolitical and industry implications for a key technology, small drones. I'll just give one more example, which would be uh, the use in space of uh, buying launch as a service combined with sponsoring some small satellite companies and then some of the analytics that are used for analyzing changes in satellite imagery. So it's phenomenal what's happening in the combination of being able to launch much more cargo at low prices, uh, the technologies that are available to give us uh, visibility around the earth that go beyond optical, what's called synthetic aperture radar that allows you to see day and night and through clouds. And then of course, AI ML technology that allows us to spot what's changing in those images uh, so that people don't have to go blind looking at pixels, but uh, we have, machines can point out what has changed. So we're bringing that combination of technologies to the Defense Department so that we have much more situational awareness or global uh, visibility, um, which uh, will be happening in the future at a rate we've, we've never before seen, more visibility around what's happening around the Earth. Wow, uh, fascinating work that you're doing. It's just, it's amazing the breadth and depth of the work that you are, you folks are are really involved in, and it's uh, tremendous. I mean, as as a listener, I was wondering, Mike, before we close, are there say a couple of takeaways you want to offer to the audience that kind of underscores the importance? I mean, you've already gave us at least two examples of the amazing things you're doing that really underscore the the, the work that you're leading. I'd say some of the key takeaways are we still have not fully uh, come to grips with as a nation. This is a critically strategic competition with China that we're in, and it's focused on technology. So how do we make sure that the U.S. Uh, does not get behind and our technology uh, lead is eroding today? So this underscores a sense of urgency, not only about the work that we're doing at DIU, but uh, what the Defense Department and the whole nation needs to be focused on in terms of making sure that we're making the right investments uh, to be preeminent in, in science and technology for decades to come. Uh, another key takeaway would be commercial technology is absolutely critical to make sure the Defense Department has leading capability. We're not a first mover in the way we once were, so how are we going to change our strategy at DOD to become a fast follower and be able to incorporate this technology and field it more quickly? Three, speed. Speed is absolutely critical uh, to making sure we've got a Defense Department that uh, is competitive and has uh, the capabilities it needs, is adopting new warfighting concepts, and is, is changing at the relevant uh, speed or at the, uh, uh, the, the speed of relevance, as Secretary Mattis used to say. So this is where we have a huge challenge. We're not an agile organization at DOD, but we need to become one. So those are some of the key takeaways that we're thinking about and focused on it at DIU every day. I know you're busy, Mike. One last question. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Well, I would love to see more people think about a career in public service. And uh, we really need more flexibility so that we're moving people across from the business world to government and vice versa. The way we structure careers today most often is that people go into government service and might stay there for 20, 30, 40 years. Um, same thing with the business world. Very few people are crossing over. We would benefit so much uh, by people taking a tour in government if they're in business 
and vice versa. And we need more flexible mechanisms for that to happen. But I would definitely encourage folks to think about spending some of their time in public service. We need your talent uh, to address some of the changes, the challenges that we talked about a minute ago for the Defense Department. Wonderful, Mike. I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule for joining me today. But more importantly, I want to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, thanks for having me, Michael. This has been a conversation with Michael Brown, director of the Defense Innovation Unit within the U.S. Department of Defense. Next up, how can we use disruption as an opportunity to innovate? I'll explore this question and much more with Jeremy Boucher, author of Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report, Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. As a follow-on to my earlier conversation with Mike Brown, Director of the Defense Innovation Unit, I wanted to close this episode with an excerpt of my conversation with author Jeremy Goucher on using disruption as an opportunity to innovate. But I was wondering, how is all of what we talked about today applicable to the business of government and to the public sector in general? Yeah, we've had a good chance to work with a, a decent percentage of government clients. So I've worked in different aspects of the U.S. government, the Canadian government, the government of Dubai. And what I find is that uh, what's interesting about government is that all the same traps persist, those same traps of path dependency, with an added layer of the fact that we need to tote party lines. We need to think of the next election. We need to try and defend our territory. And then what that starts to do is create paths that are even more ingrained, causing the repercussions of those paths to be even more uh, damaging. So the same traps exist, but often on a more magnified scale. So as the world around us moves even faster, it's pretty important to understand how those traps really, really work uh, in order to better make sure that government doesn't get far outpaced by the corporate world and by people. And certainly in, in this stretch of COVID, I think another upside, dare I say it, is that this tragedy and crisis has forced government, almost every sector, to move so much faster, to adapt and address the need, to quickly reposition, and suddenly people are recognizing how important government is, because here government is bailing us out, helping us through, taking care and looking after our loved ones who get sick. And so I think COVID-19 has been an opportunity for government to step up, for government to accelerate, for government to challenge some of the things that hold us back, whether it's the normal pace of an FDA approval for a drug or, you know, or otherwise. And so uh, I hope we can use this opportunity and experience to continue challenging some of the rules 
and, and finding ways to, to help government move faster. That's great. So, you know, um, our reading habits have changed entirely in the past decade. And you, you point that out in your book. And, and driven by media clutter and shrinking attention spans, uh, our world has become sort of headlined obsessed and clickbait. How does your book respond to this change? And are there multiple ways to learn uh, the content in your book? Yeah, when I created uh, Create the Future, it actually stems from a book I wrote in 2008 called Exploiting Chaos. And uh, I'd written Exploiting Chaos right before the world became chaotic. And that was my big career break. I was in the right place at the right time. And I had made this book that was half imagery with the bold headings and the takeaways and the tactics uh, that were all about chaos. And uh, I've written another, you know, another book in the meantime, um, five years ago. But what I really was thinking about after 12 years of working in chaos is I wanted to bring that first book back. And it was my favorite in one sense because it was so visual and full of all the charts and graphs and statistics and frameworks. And I really wanted to bring that back. And when I think about how we approach knowledge these days, I think that most business books usually deep dive one topic. And if it was innovation or disruption, you'd read a whole book convincing you that now is the time for disruption or innovation. But I think we're past that. I think we already get it. And we're looking for the tools and tactics. How do you do it? Give me examples. And so I wanted to make a book that was just full of hundreds of different tactics and examples, still with compelling, fun stories, but really focused at the end of each story on, hey, here's the takeaway. Here's the five things you can do. Here's two different workshops people do in this scenario. Uh, and that way a person can read it, pick it up, put it down, but actually have a manual for figuring out how to get through tough times or get inspired when you need to uh, reinvent and figure out what's next. So, Jeremy, I found it very interesting, some of the anecdotes you share and some and, and really how the past really is defining even today's space exploration. And in particular, the connection between Roman war chariots and our pursuit of outer space exploration. You know, why are we more dependent on our past decisions than some would like to admit? Yeah, well, okay. So um, the width of the solid rocket boosters for NASA is the width of two horses' butts. The solid rocket boosters are the width of two horses' butts. It doesn't make sense, but to figure it out, you'd have to go back to the Roman war chariot days. You'd realize the war chariots tore up the highways in Europe, creating ruts. If you pulled your wagon into those ruts, you'd break a wheel. So pretty soon, all the wagon wheels were the width of the two-horse Roman war chariot. Wagon wheels led to carts pulled by horses in mines, which led to European train tracks, which led to American train tracks, which led to NASA deciding that when they needed to ship the solid rocket boosters on a train from Utah to Florida, that they needed to have them be the width of effectively two horse butts. It's really weird, but it's true. So yes, we're more dependent on past decisions. And everyone wants innovation to happen, but realistically, we tend to repeat past decisions. And so the reasons become complex. And in Create the Future, I go through seven of the different factors of path dependency. Now, path dependency is actually a concept from uh, social psychology in like the 50s and 60s. But I kind of apply it to innovation in these periods of change to walk you through how your neuropsychology, the traps of your success, the ease of not making a change happen, all these things start to add up and they compound on us 
to just repeat whatever whatever decision we made in the past. And you know, it's interesting in a COVID-19 and post-COVID-19 world because this sort of change and crisis is scary, obviously, but it also creates an urgency and it kind of breaks us from some of that path dependency and it kind of opens up the chance for you to chart your territory and find some new paths. So that's what I study and I, I think it's really interesting to just imagine and internalize that there's more paths in life there out there for you. And we just get too caught in our ways of repeating the decisions that keep us on the path we're on. So Jeremy, what is an innovation accelerator? And more interestingly, how can one find an overlooked opportunity? Well, there, uh, there's so many great ideas all around you. And the issue would be that it's easy to dismiss the ideas that are awkward or different. In fact, you know, even something like Apple came out with their iPod, and I, I collected all the quotes that came from like Steve Ballmer, the billionaire from Microsoft, and uh, the billionaire founder of Palm, billionaire founders of BlackBerry, the CTO of Motorola, the CTO of Nokia. And it's just remarkable to see that even though that device looked interesting to us at the time, to see the market leaders and the way they dismiss a new idea is very fascinating to me. And so I've done the same analysis, even interviewing the people who you know, invented the digital camera from Kodak, all this stuff. And what you'll find is if you actually start interviewing and diving really deep in all these case studies, is that for the market leader, new ideas seem awkward. And it's not that the people at Nokia or BlackBerry or Palm, it's not like the, the, you know, they were aloof and that they didn't understand the market. It's that they'd already tried similar things. They knew the constraints. When they saw the iPhone, they thought, oh, we at Palm, we already have a way for you to map all of your, you know, calendar. Oh, this doesn't have that. And in the BlackBerry, they thought, oh, they don't have a contract that would let people transmit so much data. And there's just an easy way to dismiss new ideas. They look awkward. We tried something like it, so we dismiss it. Meanwhile, when you're not the market leader and you look at a market from the outside, wow, look how cool the iPhone works. This is going to change the world. So part of accelerating innovation within your own world is to assume potential of these awkward little ideas, to recognize the blinding power of your own expertise and how in your industry you will underestimate new technologies and kind of overestimate your own ability to, to react. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. WFED Washington, WTOP FM HD2 Washington, W283DG Sterling, WTLP FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We are nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre recorded. 
Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission. CBS 